praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord. For he commanded, and they were created, and he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree, and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps. Fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word. Mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earths and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for his people. Praise for all his saints, for the people of Israel who are near to him. Praise the Lord. That is Psalm 148. This is Bible Belt Babblings, and I am your host, Sam Blandon. The saying is that Christianity in America today is a mile wide and an inch deep, and this is one podcast of many that is seeking to change that. People have questions about life, death, and eternity, and the Bible has answers to those questions. We seek to draw those answers out. Wow. Welcome back to the program. It feels like it has been ages since I've made one of these, which... Really, with all that has happened recently, a couple of weeks is a long time. Um, You'll have to forgive me for that. These last few weeks have been busy, 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 and yet at the same time, such a huge blessing. Two weeks ago, my sister got married to an amazing dude, amazing godly guy, so I had the pleasure of being there for that sweet occasion, and Mother's Day came, so I was home spending time with the family, and I didn't even think about recording then. And then finally, the 13th through the 18th of the month, I was out of town on a tour of the Northwestern states. So, like I said, busy, busy. All that being said, though, I just did not have time to put any content out, and I hope that you all understand. But I am back. My recent travels got me thinking about a topic that I'd like to discuss. So let's get into it, shall we? As the title of this episode suggests, the topic is the proclamation that nature and creation give about the existence and the glory of God. Let me tell you what spending four days touring Washington State was incredible. And quite honestly, I am not sure I have been more awed by nature any time than seeing some of the sights there. Um, We drove over 1,100 miles during our four days that we were there, the majority of that being one day that we took a trip down to Oregon. But that whole time, the views just kept getting better and better. Um, We went to the west coast of Washington and saw the incredible um, rock-covered shores there, just massive boulders, the ocean stretching as far as the eye could see, Um, We got to see some just massive waterfalls, like indescribably huge waterfalls. Um, One of them in particular called the Twin Falls, 
just huge. I mean, we tried to take pictures of all these things, but they simply do not compare to actually being there. Um, one of my favorite features was the trees. Just gargantuan. I mean, we think that our elm trees here in Oklahoma get big, but some of the fir trees are carnivorous, whatchamacallit. I'm, I'm not a dendrologist, okay? That That's a tree scientist if you didn't know, but the trees were massive. They were huge. A woodworker's dream. I took a picture of one crosscut that I couldn't even get close to reaching my arms around, much less lifting. It was amazing. Um, the real highlight for me, though, was getting to see Mount St. Helens. I have always wanted to see Mount St. Helens in person and have watched countless documentaries, YouTube videos, um, and so on about it and about the 1980 eruption and all of that, but nothing, nothing could have prepared me for seeing it in person. So we're driving into the park, um, Gifford Pinchot National Forest, that's where Mount St. Helens is located, and it's a little bit overcast, as is normal and kind of to be expected for the northwestern states, and as we're driving down these winding mountain roads, we keep catching glimpses of the base of the mountain on the horizon, and I'm getting stoked. I'm just, I'm beside myself, grinning ear to ear. We we pull over at a couple of the lookout spots where you can get a um, more unobstructed view of the mountain. And even with the peak of it in the clouds, you can tell that it is huge. The rocky landscape just stretching out across the valley. Gorges and canyons carved out by mud flows that resulted from the eruption. It was just, it was beautiful. But I wanted to get as close as I could, and really what I was hoping for, fingers crossed, was to catch a glimpse of the full mountain. So we were trying to make it to a trailhead that led down into the valley itself so that we could hopefully get a closer, although still cloud-covered, view of the valley and mountain uh, there in it. Um, so we get to the trailhead after about probably a 45-minute drive into the park, and as we begin hiking... I notice that it looks like the clouds are starting to move out of the way of the mountain. So I'm obviously a little bit excited. Um, on the trail to the lookout that we're headed to, um, there are placards every so often pointing out different geological features and formations that were created during the eruption, which was super interesting, don't get me wrong, but I still had my sights set on that mountain as we got closer and closer to the lookout spot, the clouds began to dissipate and clear more and more until the, the trail kind of curves up and onto the top of this ridge. I literally start running to get this view and boom, the entire mountain is there. All, all of the clouds have moved out of the way it was completely exposed, not a single cloud in the sky, the entire valley just open before us. When I say that it took my breath away, I mean, there was a moment standing there looking at this mountain that my brain just stopped working. I, I couldn't, I couldn't think, I couldn't process. I just wanted to sit there and stare at it. Now, as I sat there and looked at this mountain, though, once my brain began to actually start to function again, I began to think about something. 
I began to think about the fact that everything that we had seen so far on this trip, the Pacific Ocean, the Rocky Coast, massive trees, even this giant mountain before me, all of them testified to God's glory. All of them testify to the majesty of God. As beautiful and as splendid as they were, they are merely pointing to one that is far more splendid and far more awesome, far more capable of leaving us breathless. All of creation that we had witnessed there, all the creation we see around the world, testifies to the glory of God. The psalm that I read at the beginning of the program talks about this very truth. Let me read it to you again, or at least parts of it. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps. Fire, hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word. Mountains and hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes, all rulers of the earth. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. The wondrous nature that God created and our enjoyment of it testifies to his existence and his majesty and his glory. Unfortunately, there's a catch to this, though. Even though creation testifies to the existence of God by its majesty, it also testifies to something a lot different. It testifies to the corrupting power of sin by its own corruption. Nature is beautiful. It's glorious. We got to experience that there in Washington, and yet it's also treacherous, dangerous, deadly, and terrifying. We see this on a large scale with natural disasters like earthquakes, hurricanes, tornadoes, and volcanic eruptions like the one that happened in the 1980s with Mount St. Helens, where unfortunately 57 people lost their lives. We also see it on a smaller scale with plants that poke and irritate, poison ivy that gives rashes, weeds that choke out other plants, thorns and thistles, dare I even mention it, viruses and diseases that make us sick and even kill us. What about mosquitoes, those nasty little buggers? They're a result of sin entering the world too, the disease that they carry, malaria that kills hundreds of thousands of people each year. The annoying itch that they cause, which, okay, admittedly isn't as bad as death, but it can make you wish for it sometime. How about seed ticks? You ever run into a nasty squad of seed ticks? That will make your skin crawl, quite literally. All of these things are a result of sin. The creation is corrupted by sin ravaging the world. The word that Paul uses this in Romans 8 to describe the corruption is futility or frustration. The creation is subjected to futility and bondage to corruption because of sin ravaging it, because of sin that has entered the world. And yet there's hope for restoration for the creation. We'll talk about that more in just a minute. How exactly do we know, though, that creation proves the existence of God? For starters, Romans 1 talks about this very topic. We see in verses 18 through 23 that nature declares to us that God exists, 
that he is omnipotent and divine. Paul writes in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. If this is the case, though, if nature shows that God exists and man is without excuse, why is it that so many reject the existence of God still? Paul makes it clear that God's existence is undeniable, and yet we see that people still reject God because they are suppressing the truth in their unrighteousness. Paul explains this in verse, starting in verse 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So then, although creation makes it clear logically that God must exist, men continue to deny that truth because they love their sin. Their evil desires are their God, and they suppress the truth. They will suppress the truth about the true God in order to continue to pursue their sin. Let me see if I can explain this concept in a little bit clearer terms. How exactly is it that the creation makes it clear that there is a creator simply by its existence? To use the example Todd Friel gives when evangelizing, how do you know by looking at a building that there was someone who built it? Because the building itself exists. Buildings do not just happen on their own. In fact, they can't. It's impossible. The same is true of creation. It simply cannot happen on its own. Another example for you, the iPhone. How do I know that someone somewhere is making iPhones? Because I can reach into my pocket here. I can pull mine out. I can see the Apple logo on the back. I can read the model and manufacturer information. iPhones do not just happen by chance or accident. They can't. It's impossible. Someone had to design it and put it together and test it for it to work, and for me to have it in my hands today. The same is true with God and with creation. Now, some will no doubt protest and say, well, science proves how nature and the world and life exists without God by evolution and the Big Bang. Although I would argue that evolution itself is a flawed worldview, that's a whole other discussion that we will get to at a later time, but I would still have to point out the problem of where did the first cell that began the evolutionary process come from. Abiogenesis is the name of this phenomenon, which in reality is a scientific impossibility. Life coming from non-life. Abiogenesis. You do not get life from the absence of life. It simply isn't possible. Scientists have tried for years to figure out how to do it in a lab, and it doesn't work. In fact, 
it's actually a very good thing that it doesn't work because our food industry depends on that. Our food industry depends on the fact that abiogenesis doesn't happen. Can you imagine somewhere in a factory in a controlled and sterile environment, they are jarring your favorite brand of peanut butter, Jif or Peter Pan or whatever. Personally, I prefer the Great Value brand because it's cheaper. Anyways, they seal the jar, making sure that nothing living can get in and that nothing living is in it, that the batch isn't tainted with bacteria. But that dang abiogenesis gets in the way, and by the time you open the jar in your kitchen, there's billions and billions of microorganisms swirling around in that soft, smooth, peanut buttery goodness just waiting for you to take a bite so that they can make you sick. Now, we recognize that that isn't how it works. If someone gets sick from peanut butter... We do not come to the conclusion that life somehow spontaneously came into being in that sealed jar, but that somehow bacteria got in during the jarring process. For life to exist, there must be a life giver. Abiogenesis is impossible. That life giver must, by nature, be self-sufficient, self-sustained. This is a mind-boggling principle known as aseity, the aseity of God, a seity, meaning God exists in and of himself. He was not created, nor did he create himself. He simply has always been. He is the first cause. Let's take it a step further, shall we? How did the universe begin at all? Same principle applies here. In order for there to be anything, in order for the universe to exist as it is today, there has to be something that brought everything from nothing. Now, secular science will try to explain the existence of the universe through the Big Bang Theory, although even that is outdated now, I believe, but bear with me. The basic argument, and you'll have to forgive me if I explain this poorly, but the idea is that there was an infinitesimal point of superdense matter, all of the matter in the universe contained in this point, and that it was this tiny stable ball that that contained all the matter in the universe. And this point is just sitting there when all of a sudden, boom, the universe explodes into existence. Now, my initial question would be, what caused the explosion? However, even past that, I would ask, where did all of that matter come from? What created that ball of super dense material. Now, if you press on this question hard enough, you'll eventually end up with ridiculous theories um, known as infinite regress, the theory that there's a number of infinite universes that existed before our own and that we've always been in this cycle of a universe dying and then a new one forming and so on. But this doesn't really answer the question. All of that matter... Even if there were infinite universes, that matter had to come from somewhere. Other theories actually tried to argue that there was nothing. That there was nothing before the Big Bang, and then the, the Big Bang banged and brought everything into existence. As R.C. Sproul phrases it, I think, perfectly, if nothing existed before the Big Bang, what would there be right now? Nothing. 
because in order for there to even be a Big Bang, there has to be something to bang. Similar to evolution, I would argue that Big Bang cosmology is flawed. We will be discussing that in a later episode, but in order for the Big Bang to happen, this is the main point, in order for the Big Bang to happen, there has to be someone to cause the bang or create the matter that banged in the first place. The consistent logical view, then, is plainly what Paul says in Romans. Creation proves that there is a creator because in order for there to be a creation, there must have been someone that did the creating. In order for anything to exist at all, there must be something that existed outside of everything. So, all of that being said, if there is a creator... What does that mean for you and me? What is the practical application of these principles? Well, as Paul shows in Romans 1, the creation proves that God exists, but that men suppress that truth and unrighteousness because they love their sin. Yet, as I have shown to you, creation shows that God is very real. If God is very real, then that means he as a creator gets to determine how his creation operates. This creates a real problem for you and me because he did determine how his creation operates. And yet our representatives, Adam and Eve, our federal heads, if you will, rebelled against that order, rebelled against the created order that God put them under and sinned against God. By doing so, they have brought all of creation, including you and me, under the curse of sin. Remember, I mentioned this earlier, natural disasters, disease, death, men committing crimes against other men, the breaking of God's law. These are all examples of sin and its effects, and no one is innocent in this matter. Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Man has a problem, that being we have broken God's law. God is holy. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's ever-present. He is exceedingly just, and as the just judge of his creation, he demands punishment for sin. Since we are lawbreakers, we deserve the penalty of breaking the law. There has to be punishment for sin because God is just and righteous, and that penalty is death. Romans 6.23 tells us this, the wages of sin is death. You and I are in deep trouble before God. So much so that Ephesians 2 actually calls us children of wrath. That the wrath of God burns against us because of our sin. And yet the situation isn't hopeless. As we have been seeing in the other series that we've been working on um, through the Old Testament, there is a solution to this problem. Even from the beginning, even from the fall, God had a plan. We see again in Romans 3 that though we sinned against God, he has shown mercy. Romans 3:23 through 26 says this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And if we stop right there, we're in deep trouble. And yet there's hope. We continue and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as the propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, 
He has passed over former sin. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There's a term in there, propitiation. This means that Jesus came down from heaven. He took the form of man. He lived the perfect life that you and I biffed from birth. We just absolutely messed it up. Sinners from the beginning, wretches before God. Jesus did it perfectly. He kept the commands. He did what was pleasing to God. And then on top of all of that, he died the death that we deserved. He took the wrath of God upon himself that once burned upon you and me. So that by repenting our sin and putting our trust in him, in Christ, in the sacrifice that he has made for us, we may be reconciled with and justified before God. Man, I really, really enjoyed getting to go and see everything that I saw while in Washington. And the beauty of the scenery up there reminded me so much of God's goodness to me, despite my rebellion against him. The God that created those massive trees, the giant waterfalls, the incredible forests, and majestic Mount St. Helens also created you and I. We've broken his law. We're undeserving of forgiveness. And yet, he offers mercy to anyone who will turn away from their sin and put their faith in Christ's work on the cross, in his perfect salvation that he offers to us. So that's really all I have for this episode. I really hope that you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed making it. Make sure that you keep an eye out for part two of the gospel series that me and my good friend Caleb Hardage have been working on. It will be coming out really soon. It's already recorded. And let me tell you, it is a good one. If you haven't already, head on over to wherever you listen to podcasts and check out part one of that series. Um, You do not want to miss out. Make sure you subscribe, like it, share it, rate it, do all the things that you do with stuff like this. Make sure you do the same for this episode. If you have Facebook, you can follow me on our page, Bible Belt Babblings, where we will post updates on upcoming content, links to all the podcasts, more information about the program, and so on. So, uh, thank you so much for listening. Your support means so much to me. You have no idea. Please make sure that you continue to keep me and this program in your prayers. That is all for this episode. Lord willing, we will talk to you all soon. God bless.